Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Coming to you from New York, New York, this is the official Gilded Age podcast. Welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion to the HBO original series, The Gilded Age. I'm Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys podcast, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Alicia Malone. Hi, Alicia. Hello there, Mr. Myers. Yes, I'm Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies, and I'm ready to learn more about 1880s New York. Last week, I got a history lesson on entertaining and etiquette during the Gilded Age, and we spoke about Agnes gate-crashing Bertha's big luncheon with (laughs) Ward McAllister. This week, our focus is on American art and innovations, the new technology that changed lives at this time, namely electricity. And Alicia, I hope that you're ready because later in the show, we will have two special visitors, director Michael Engler and Bertha Russell herself, actress Carrie Coon. But first, let's dive into episode seven of The Gilded Age called Irresistible Change, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. Episode 7 begins with George Russell showing off the model for his upcoming train station, Union Central Station. And Tom, Union Station seems like it was a common name for train stations at this time. Yes, it was. Although New York didn't really have a Union Station. Mm. Union Square, yes, but Union Station, no. New York in the year of our story, 1882 had a Grand Central Depot on 42nd Street that had been opened a little over a decade before. And there was also the Hudson River Railroad Depot between 29th and 30th over on 9th Avenue. And both of those stations were controlled by the Vanderbilts. And Grand Central, as in it was central within the city? I don't think so, no, because it wasn't really central at all when it opened in 1871. It was too far Mm. north. More likely, they called it that because Vanderbilt had just acquired the New York Central Railroad in 1869. He would then merge several railroads that he owned into the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad, and they would use Grand Central. So it was a central hub for his railroad, and his company was also called the New York Central Right. Got it. So I remember (laughs) you mentioning in a previous episode that another station would open in 1911, I think, Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. Station, which was named for its railroad, the Pennsylvania. That's right. Yes. Another station that had been named for the railroad that owned it. So how about the Union stations that we find, you know, throughout the country? Well, those typically refer to the fact that several railroads use the same station. They, They bring them together there. The stations are a union of different companies. 
and they would have then allowed passengers to easily transfer from one rail line to the other. Totally makes sense and not like I was thinking, named for the Union or the North during the Civil War. No. By the way, the same thing holds for Union Square in New York. It had been developed in the 1830s, and it was named for the merging of several major streets and avenues into one square. The more you know. <laughs> there you go. Okay, but in our story, George Russell Station is Union Central Station. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite a name. Um, <laughs> and I have to say, when I was digging around in some old papers, I did find some instances of the Grand Central Depot, while it was still under construction, referred to as Grand Union Depot, uh, mm. but never as Union Central Station. So did the Grand Central Depot look like the one that George unveils? Kind of, yeah. It was brick, it was sort of the same style. But of course, when it opened in 1871, it was not equipped with electric lighting. Right, because when George unveils his model, it lights up with electricity, which, as George explains to Bertha, was just a simple battery and the real thing would be more impressive. And he's been invited to the big reveal of electric indoor lighting that Thomas Edison is staging. Now, Turner points out that electricity itself had been around for a long time, but that it was Edison who harnessed the power for indoor lighting. Yeah, Edison wasn't alone, of course. And yes, Turner is proving that she is always right, kind of like <laughs> Aunt Agnes. Electricity had been known about, although it hadn't really been fully understood since ancient times. The, the science behind it would really pick up in the 1700s. You know, we know about Benjamin Franklin famously investing in the research behind it. But the science of electricity and how to generate it, how to store it, would really advance quickly in the 19th century. So there's electricity and then electric lighting. Right. Those are two different things. Related, but different things. And we see in the show that prior to this, the only way that these houses had light indoors at nighttime was by using gas lights or, or candles or oil lanterns, mm -hmm. or we see the light from fireplaces. Yeah, I think we've seen all of those used on the show so far. In the, mm -hmm. in the first episode, we see a man lighting a gas street lamp outside on Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. Houses would have gas lighting, the houses that we see here. They were smaller and dimmer fixtures, right, in the Van Rijn house than in the bright chandeliers that fill all the rooms at the Russells. And yeah, actually, look at that. You notice that the nighttime scenes are lit quite differently in the Van Rijn house and the Russell house. Oh, that's a good observation. And that was just the city's richest homes. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how limited the lighting options must have been for the working class and for poorer New Yorkers. Yes, some would have gas lighting, but many would have had only oil lamps and candles, which would be even more dangerous. Mm. And with all of these, including gas lighting, there'd be fumes, right, and flickers. But these fumes, you could smell the lighting and you could actually get sick from inhaling too much of it. Oh, gosh. And electricity has really been the undercurrent, get it, oh, of the show. <laughs> well done. I mean, as you said, the impending technology was foreshadowed. Is that one? Right at the beginning Unstoppable. of the series. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. <laughs> With that lamp lighter on his ladder. But it's, it's just so hard to imagine dimly lit New York City streets. Well, here we are in 1882. By this time, there actually was some electrical street lighting in place because arc lights had started shining down on the city streets in 1880. 
I read about Arclights in Esther Crane's The Gilded Age in New York, mm -hmm. and I remember her writing that they made the city feel safer, but women complained because it gave them a sort of pale, ghostly pallor to their skin. <laughs> yeah, well, right, because these were much brighter white lights. They're not pleasant at all. They're very powerful. And starting in 1880, the Brush Electric Light Company would light up Broadway with this glaring white light from Union Square, from 14th Street, up into the 20s and then eventually into the 30s. But this was different from the softer incandescent light that we see Thomas Edison using here in 1882. Which was much more flattering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's the light that we see George demonstrate with his model. And now one character that was very inspired by this unveiling and by the creation of the Russell's house is George's son, Larry Russell, played by Harry Richardson, another Australian, by the way. Oh, <laughs> He has been secretly talking to the architect Stanford White about studying architecture instead of following his dad into the family business. But when he approaches his father with the idea, it doesn't go as planned. You've asked once and I've said no. So it didn't make any difference that Stanford White, potentially one of our greatest architects, thought I might have talent. The great Stanford White turned your head when he built our house. I don't entirely blame him. I blame myself. I should have been watching. What would you prefer me to do? What you're doing now, of course. You must study my business and take it over in time. What is it? Father, you're a genius. You made a fortune that will go down in legend. I doubt there are a dozen men as successful as you in this country. I doubt there are a hundred in the world. You're very kind. What chance do you think I have of equaling that if I follow in your footsteps? Well, I must always be the disappointing son of a great man. The poor second act, the failure. But if I take another path entirely, like architecture, I have the chance to make a mark of my own. So, Tom, we haven't had the chance to talk that much about Larry so far. And, you know, I just adore him. He's, he's a kind and he's a stable presence. And up until this moment, he's really been the, the peacemaker at home. Yeah, no, I, I like Larry. He's, he's such a pleasant guy to have around. Mm. And what a smile. Oh, yes. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Anyway, and how interesting that he wants to get into architecture training with Stanford White, no less. Yes, Larry had previously confided in Marion that he had aspirations of becoming an architect, and she said that she envied him for making his own path. But as we see, even though he's a man in society and has more power than Marion, he's still beholden to what his father wants for him. Yeah. And I'm imagining this is exactly what happened. The sons of robber barons or, or businessmen were expected to follow in their footsteps. Yeah, well, it certainly happened with the Vanderbilts and the Astors and many others. You know, the sons kept the family business running smoothly. It seems that Actually, George has had the same plan for Larry that Commodore Vanderbilt had had for his son, William, and that William Vanderbilt had for his son, Cornel. Just keep it in the family. Right. But I have to say, though I felt bad for Larry, there was a funny moment when Stanford White tried to smooth things out by suggesting, <laughs> you know, Larry only wants to study architecture to help his family's business. But Larry was not about to pretend he wanted anything different. Yeah, Stanford does this kind of like, I think what Larry is trying to say, move, you know, <laughs> yes. and only to have like Larry snap back. No, it's not. <laughs> I think that I think that was the snappiest we've seen Larry, wasn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, he really wants this. And now Larry is the Russell child who's feeling restricted by a parent and Gladys is free to hold a ball. Mm -hmm. Bertha suddenly changes her mind about keeping Gladys in and she agrees that Gladys and Cariasta can hold a quadrille in their ballroom. Their ballroom, which, by the way, we now know, was shot at the Breakers in Newport, the Mm. Vanderbilt Mansion. But yes, a quadrille is a type of formal French square dance, and it often kicked off the balls. And Carrie mentions a lot of names in this scene. Angela Skomahorn, Uh Sally Drexel, Ormy Wilson. Correct me if I'm wrong, but these were real people, yes? Yes, the families are all real, of course. The Skirmerhorns would have been related to Carrie as her mother, Caroline Astor, was a Skirmerhorn by birth. And Sally Drexel? Yes, there was a Sarah Drexel who went by Sally from the powerful Philadelphia Drexel family. And Sally had married a few years before our story. But now we know, Alicia, also that Christine Baranski and Agnes is related through marriage to the Drexels. So, you know, maybe that's another one of those little Drexel nods for Aunt Agnes. Yes, Julian mentioned that he sprinkled the Drexels throughout the script for Christine. And how about Orm Wilson? Oh, yes. Marshall Orm Wilson was definitely real. The Wilsons were a rich Southern family who moved to New York after the Civil War, actually into Boss Tweed's old Fifth Avenue mansion, And they were looked on with suspicion for one reason, because all five of their children married so well into society. They'd become known as the Marrying Wilsons. And I hope this isn't a spoiler for a future season, but let's just say that Carrie would one day become Carrie Astor Wilson. Well, no, that's not a spoiler because that's just history. (laughs) That's right. Anybody can just look up Carrie's married name. Well, let's go back across the road where poor Agnes is still reeling from the double betrayal we saw in the previous episode. She's refusing to speak to Bannister because he helped Bertha Russell with her English-style luncheon for Ward McAllister. And then after Armstrong told her there was something improper going on between Oscar and Turner, she instructs Marion to tell Bertha to fire her lady's maid. He said they were friendly acquaintances and that was all. Well, I suppose... As if my son would number a lady's maid among his friends. Even Ada thought that was nonsense and she barely knows how babies are born. Agnes, your anger is making you indelicate. So what happens now? I want her sacked. I want her out on her ear by tomorrow night. Then you must write to Mrs. Russell. What would I say? My mother always told me never to write anything I wouldn't want printed on the letters page of a popular journal. Then what will you do? I'll do nothing. You will go and see Mrs. Russell. After all, you know her. I do not. But it isn't my quarrel. Your family's honor is in danger. Certainly it is your quarrel. What right have I to ask a woman to fire her own servant? It's an impossible task. Marion, I may be didactic, but I do not often give orders. This is a direct order. Will you defy me? Is that what we have come to? Oh, do not defy Agnes. Her (laughs) anger is definitely 
making her indelicate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She gives Marion this direct order, and then she also uses Ada as a way to communicate with Bannister without actually talking to him. Yeah, Agnes is complicated and and didactic as well. (laughs) She's such a stickler for tradition. You know, the whole New York is a collection of villages and old families versus new families business. Mm. But then she's also open to Peggy joining the household. But then she's aghast that her son would be seen with a lady's maid. She's so complicated. She is. So let's talk about why Oscar being seen with Turner was such a big deal because it just wasn't the done thing for a member of a prominent family to be consorting with a servant. Remember how Morgan Spector mentioned this in his interview with us, that it was it was so hard for him to not ever say thank you to a footman on the set or you know whoever was pulling out the chair or placing a meal in front of him. You didn't even look at them. Mm, that would feel so foreign. And, and we know that Turner has already been pushing so many boundaries. She Mm -hmm. sneaks into George's bedroom and she also approaches him in the hallway. Yeah, she's been breaking the rules. And remember, she also kind of like hung around for a little too long a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Well, Oscar doesn't seem too concerned. <laughs> it gives him another smoke screen to hide who he actually is. And he also thinks it may help him with Gladys. And as for everyone else, he says the ladies might take exception, but their husbands won't. Right, which points out again that men could get away with things that women couldn't. Being mm-hmm. seen as a ladies' man might cause some people to whisper, but whispers about a woman were were going to be far more damaging. Oh, yes. So Marion does what Aunt Agnes asks of her and Bertha fires Turner, though not specifically because of Agnes's request. It seems like she only decides that Turner must go when she spots Larry and Turner laughing together. Mm-hmm. Do you think she thought that Larry might be the man that Marion was referring to? It's not clear, right? I mean, yeah. I think that we're going to have to ask Carrie Coon in a few minutes. I think, <laughs> let's go straight to Bertha with this one. Good idea. And also, was it just me or did you think that George Russell looked a little bit scared when Bertha told him about an affair that Turner was having? <laughs> I think he may have thought just for a second that the rumors were about him. Yeah, there was some serious eyebrow arching. There was, <laughs> yes. there was something slightly nervous about his reaction. And speaking of nervous reactions, how about Bertha asking Marion if she could invite Tom Rakes to their big carriage party without Marion? I mean, that was totally shady. Oh, I know. And Marion was so excited about the idea of this event. And and then Peggy tells her that she's also going. She's going to be covering the lighting of the Times building for the New York Globe. And now when Peggy is being assigned this story by T. Thomas Fortune, he mentions Louis Latimer. He was a black man who was also vital in the history of electricity. Yes, Louis Latimer was an African-American inventor born in Massachusetts to parents who had been enslaved. He would lead a remarkable career working for Alexander Graham Bell on the telephone invention and patent, and he would move over to working on lighting inventions in the late 1870s. Wow, so did he help to invent the incandescent light bulb? Well, he improved it. Thomas Edison was granted the patent in 1880 for the incandescent light bulb, Although various forms of these bulbs had been in development for years by inventors all over the world. And in New York, a rival company, the U.S. Electric Lighting Company, which was owned by Hiram Maxim, hired Louis Latimer and developed their own bulb, which they installed in the Equitable Life Building 
before Edison's big event that we see in this episode. Oh, so was that the first building to have electric lights in New York, the Equitable Life Building? Exactly, yes. And it was powered by its own generator. However, Edison was the major player here with the patent and also the plan to bring electricity to entire districts of New York City, which is why this event was so important. But Louis Latimer did invent a sturdier carbon filament, which meant a longer lasting bulb. And he would be awarded a patent for this in 1882. And a couple years later, Edison would hire Latimer to come work for him. But I'm imagining since, you know, I haven't heard of him, but I know all about Edison, that Edison did not, as Peggy sarcastically says, give Latimer his due credit. Well, he would hire him, but yeah, Edison didn't give a lot of people their due. I mean, he held more than a thousand patents and had teams of scientists working for him, yet his is the name that's remembered most today. Fortunately, some of those other stories are getting more attention today, including Latimer's. And you can visit Latimer's house in Flushing, Queens today. It's a museum. Oh, that's cool. And we're going to talk more about Edison in a second. But speaking of sparks and creating heat, okay, that was a stretch, but oh. Tom Rakes and Marion Brooke have a meeting place where they can get to know each other a little bit more deeply. And that is Mrs. Chamberlain's house. Uh, Mrs. Chamberlain, who we've already mentioned, is based on the lovely and scandalous Arabella Huntington, who, by the way, did acquire a fabulous art collection once she married Collis Huntington in 1884. And that's interesting because here, Mrs. Chamberlain owns a famous statue by Degas, the little dancer aged 14. And this had been displayed in an Impressionist exhibition in 1881. And although Marion seems to like it, this statue was not well received at first because mm -hmm. like technology, art was also an area experiencing innovation at this time. That's correct. Yeah, there was a new crop of artists who was challenging the old guard, including Edgar Degas, who exhibited the original Little Dancer statue in 1881, like you said, in Paris, the year before our story. The statue was so unconventional. It was sculpted in beeswax and also clay and metal and other materials. And she wore a real tutu and slippers and even had hair, real hair. Critics didn't know what to think of it. And on top of it all, they complained that the girl herself was unattractive. Wow. And to think that Mrs. Chamberlain was able to acquire the statue the very next year. Yeah, that's a little bit of showbiz magic for you. Um, <laughs> the statue would stay with Degas in reality in Paris until he died in 1917. And after that, the family had more than two dozen bronze casts made. So the one that you see at the Met today in New York is one of those casts, although the original lives at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Well, also, while Tom and Marion are visiting Mrs. Chamberlain, she gives the couple some frank advice. Before I go, may I offer a little of what I've gleaned from my own experience? Of course. When you're young, it feels a small thing to turn your back on society. But as the years go on, it can be a lonely place out there. Make sure you are very much in love as I was, or there may come a day when the road you've taken does not seem worth it. And by worth it, Mrs. Chamberlain seems to be warning them that they could also become outcasts to society. 
Yeah, they better make sure their love is strong enough to endure scandal and possibly being outcasts. But I think she's also second-guessing Tom's intentions just a little bit. She wouldn't be alone. I mean, did you catch Aurora Fane's glance in the carriage picnic scene? Yes. She is not pleased at all by his proximity to Miss Bingham. Not at all. And Tom Rakes has definitely been welcomed by society, by all the R's, as Agnes points out. (laughs) Marion seems proud that Rakes is in with the Rikers, Rockwells, Randolphs and Russells. Mm -hmm. So who were the Rikers? Well, let me just open my handy social register. I'm serious, Alicia. I I picked up an 1898 copy at the Society Library. (laughs) John Lawrence Riker led a prominent old New York family. Um, He had established a chemical company, and he was also a big art collector. It does not surprise me one bit that you have a social register from 1898. (laughs) (laughs) How about the Rockwells? Not in the social register of 1898. Okay, what about the Randolphs? Oh, there are all kinds of Randolphs. Yeah, um, all seemingly related to Edmund D. Randolph, not to be confused with Edmund J. Randolph of Virginia. And I, I won't even get into the Roberts or the Robinsons. There are pages of Robinsons here. Oh, my gosh. Well, it makes me wonder if Tom had a copy of this social register because he, he could have gone in <laughs> with even more R's. Uh, but he, unfortunately, he was a little too early. The first edition of the register wouldn't come out until 1887. Gotcha. And Tom is seated next to Sissy Bingham. Who we have heard is the niece of Henry Flagler, who was one of the founders of Standard Oil with John D. Rockefeller. Wow, so Tom Rakes really is moving up in society. And the party also includes the Fanes and Ward McAllister. But first up, Tom, can I just express how much I would love to have a carriage picnic? Oh, I know. It looks like they're having a blast. Yes. I mean, even if everybody seems a bit wedged in there, it kind of looks like they're being served a fancy meal in business class or something. I mean, they've got <laughs> the kind of trays on their laps, lots of champagne. Oh, it's just so elegant. Okay, this scene is based on a real event that happened September 4th in 1882. Mm-hmm. In the show, Edison starts the engines at the power plant at Pearl Street and then pulls a lever to slowly illuminate the Times building on Park Row. How does this compare to what actually happened? Well, according to the next day's New York Times, um, in an article that is weirdly buried on page 8 under the header Miscellaneous City News... The giant dynamos that generated the electricity were fired up at 3 p.m. in the Pearl Street electric plant, which we heard referenced here. And then that supplied electricity for indoor lighting for an entire district of lower Manhattan that was about a one square mile section of downtown. So had that entire district been wired for electricity? I mean, were there just wires hanging about the place? (laughs) No, Edison's electric lamp company had been burying the wires underground in uh, insulated tubes for many months. Mm. And then when he turned on the juice, the lights went on for those inside the district who had subscribed to the service, which did include the Times building. And the paper published a piece the next day then, writing, quote, It was about five o'clock yesterday when the lights were put into operation. It was then broad daylight and the light looked dim. It was not until about seven o'clock when it began to grow dark that the electric light really made itself known and showed how bright and steady it is. Uh, 
Then the 27 electric lamps in the editorial rooms and the 25 lamps in the counting rooms made those departments as bright as day, but without any unpleasant glare. So do you think that New Yorkers would have stopped in their tracks? You know, people happened to be walking by and and saw this electricity? Maybe, but remember that they were already used to blazing bright arc lights outside. And, Mm. And these were so much softer. But the workers inside hardly even realized that they were on at all or that it was dark outside. The separation of day and night, which had been so clearly defined forever, had blurred. As Edmund Morris wrote in Edison, his biography on the inventor, quote, the revolution Edison had wrought was so unobtrusive and at the same time so world-changing that few, if any, of the people who experienced it realized what had happened. Then this took New York City one step closer to famously becoming the city that never sleeps. (laughs) Yes. And it was inspired by a real-life event. I found out from the production team that this scene was based on a dramatic lighting ceremony that was held at the 1901 Buffalo World's Fair. It was a moment when the grounds and the buildings, which had all been dark, all suddenly lit up at the same time, leaving the public standing there just speechless, followed, of course, by wild applause. I have to say this scene is one of my favorite from the the entire series so mm-hmm. far because I just love seeing how the the warm glow of the flickering incandescent bulbs gradually light up all the faces in the crowd and and everyone who is there no matter you know who they are or what class they're from they're just all collectively in awe of what they're looking at Yeah, it's a really touching moment in the show. I've watched this episode a few times, Mm. and every time I get chills. And I think it also makes me relate that moment to other moments where I've actually physically celebrated in the streets next to people I didn't know. um, Mm -hmm. Some big moment, you know? And uh, yeah, I found it really touching. And I, I look forward to discussing this scene in a few minutes with director Michael Engler. Yes, it's beautiful. And I also want to ask Carrie Coon what the cast were actually looking at. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's also a wonderful line of dialogue between Ward McAllister and Bertha Russell. He says, this is a turning point in history, Mrs. Russell, but are we headed in the right direction? And Bertha says, we don't have a choice in the matter, Mr. McAllister. We must go where history takes us. Mm -hmm. So being the, uh, the New York history buff that you are, you know, how do you sum up just how important this moment in time was? Well, whether they realized it or not, this was absolutely transformative for the life of New Yorkers on many different levels. And if we just look at lighting, this would mean that the interiors of homes and stores and offices and train stations, they could be as light as day at night. And we take this obviously for granted today, but this alone would have profound implications. It would change everything. It's hard to get your head around just how big this was. Right. So that feel-good, tingly moment here is totally justified. And we'll talk more about how this electric scene was filmed with director Michael Engler and star Carrie Coon, who plays Bertha Russell after this break.
There'll be a hearing to determine if a crime's been committed and whether it should go for trial. Well, haven't they already found the man to blame? That depends. Some people may think the man to blame is your husband. Don't joke about this, George. I'm not joking. We can't afford a scandal, not when I'm so near. I'm taking a party to see Mr. Edison's lights, and I've set a date for Gladys's ball. I'm glad to hear it. But it won't happen if you're on trial. I'd have to cancel. My dear, I don't make the rules. I will do everything within my power to defend myself. What more can I say? But I've already settled a date with Mr. McAllister. Well, God forbid I should be a disappointment for Mr. McAllister. If you think this is funny... I don't think it in the least funny that I'm facing the possibility of prison and my wife is more concerned with the date of a ball. Hmm. Welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast. I'm Alicia Malone with my co-host Tom Myers. And now we're joined by two very special guests, director Michael Engler and Carrie Coon, who plays Bertha Russell. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And Carrie, let's start by talking about the clip that we just heard. Throughout the series, George and Bertha Russell have shown that they have a very solid, loving relationship. And Bertha has been very strong, despite George's legal troubles, telling him, we won't be defeated, George. But do you think that she's more concerned about her husband's fate or what Mrs. Astor or Ward McAllister might think about her? Well, like all complicated people, she has her blind spots. Mm -hmm. And what we know of Bertha so far is that she's quite single-minded when it comes to her preoccupation, which is social climbing, which is, of course, her only occupation. It's the only occupation besides philanthropy that's allowed to her. Mm -hmm. And so she pursues it with avidity that's deeply offensive to most of the other characters, in the, um, <laughs> including her husband at times. And I do think that one of the things I like about Bertha is that she's complex. She's not always a great wife or a great mother. Mm -hmm. She lets her own ambition get in the way. And I actually think that complication makes her much more interesting. So yeah, she's not really paying as close attention to George's state of mind as perhaps she ought to. But in her defense, she's also looking at trying to set up her children's future. And so, you know, that's a worthy occupation for her. Uh, absolutely. And you mentioned that she's complicated. I mean, we've seen her seem very strong and ambitious, and then also seen her a little bit vulnerable, you know, even like at the Society of Music. She seems a little like vulnerable when she's been in society for the first time. Yes, she's learning the ropes. And all of these draconian rules and these manners mm -hmm. are set up to catch out people like her, to expose her as someone who does not belong. And she's well aware of this trap. And so I do love that there's some vulnerability for Bertha in those situations, but also that she's willing to puncture those realities. She's willing to call out people on the fact that some of these relationships are purely transactional. Mm -hmm. And she cuts through the bullshit, frankly, and that's something else I like about her. But yeah, I do like that yeah. she gets, she's nervous. Yeah, she wants to do a good job. There's a lot riding on it. The stakes are very high for her. And Carrie, I think you're you're so wonderful at playing Bertha and, and portraying both of those sides of her, the strength and also the vulnerability. I cannot imagine anyone else in this role, but I was surprised to read that you came to the cast a little bit later. I did. You know, I um, luckily I've been working <laughs> pretty steadily. And uh, the first time The Gilded Age came around when it was set up at NBC, I wasn't available to really consider it. But I was very grateful that the opportunity opened back up the show was about to go into production and they lost an actor because of COVID because um, Amanda Peet was not able to um, continue because of the schedule changes. And so I was really grateful that the project came back around with sort of this new host of people behind it. They'd added Sonia Warfield and Dr. Erica Dunbar and really leaned into 
particularly Peggy's story, Danae Benton's story, and mm -hmm. flush that out a little bit. Where the show could go was really exciting to me. And also, we were facing a global pandemic, mm -hmm. and nobody knew when our industry was going to come back. And frankly, this seemed like the kind of show that HBO was really behind, and a great team, and all these wonderful Broadway actors that I'll never act with, <laughs> because I can't sing and dance. I can't walk and sing at the same time. So I'd get to rub elbows with all these people I admire so much. It seemed like just a really wonderful opportunity for me. And when you came to the character, was there something in particular that you were excited about? Well, I love this time period. I'm, I'm a big Henry James fan. Portrait of a Lady is one of my favorite books. I, I return to it every couple of years. I was a literature major in college, so I was big, mm. a big book nerd. And Edith Wharton, of course. I think I dressed up as Edith Wharton in fourth grade for a book report. <laughs> just you are strange. a book nerd. That's amazing. I'm a total book That's nerd, amazing. yes. And in the pitch document that Julian had put together, he talks a lot about Bertha as an amalgam of Alva Vanderbilt and some of the other women from that time, but particularly Alva. There are some points in her biography that are really just good drama, frankly. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it was really interesting to read about Julian's vision for Bertha. And women like Alva were incredibly complicated women. They're women who might have been senators or entrepreneurs in their own right had they been born in another time. But again, their, their energy mm -hmm. was relegated to this sphere, this social sphere. You could sort of paint <laughs> Bertha as the villain, but in fact, she's the victor, you know, in history. If you look at the yes. women of Alva Vanderbilt's status, they were the ones who did forge new society and take over. And so that's, I mean, that's really fun stuff to play. It's really active. I think the thing about the two of them and their relationship in terms of that clip, I think, is, is interesting, which is that they both have a huge vision for themselves and for them as a unit, for their family, for their name, you know, and the idea that she's working on one track, which is sort of the family, home, society track, and he's working on the other track, the business, politics track, which is sort of how it was divided in those, in those times. But they were equally important, and they each accelerated the other. And so this is a point where the two tracks are now beginning to collide mm. and they have to negotiate more. But one doesn't work without the other. Her track doesn't work without his power and money. And his track doesn't work if they're not actually a part of society and if their house isn't a place that people will come to who are the people he wants to work with and be in politics with. Yeah, and that's something that actually Julian Fellows mentioned to us when we talked with him in the very first episode. He was saying that, you know, that it was the women who were driving society during this period. And I'm wondering, Michael, what is it specifically about the Gilded Age that drew you to this period? I mean, I, too, am a huge fan of Edith Wharton, Henry James, and this period and all that. But actually, what drew me to this particular project, first of all, I do love working with Julian, and I think he has an ability to write in a historical way where you feel the truth of the period, but also the struggles of the individual within that period. So I do love all of that. But part of it was, I feel like it was a time when this country really became what it was on course to for the first time. I mean, it was always kind of growing and it was new, and but it was always in a kind of imitation of European everything, European culture, European style of, of life. But it's the moment when class was defined as hereditary, you know, heritage, family, name, to it becoming about really money and celebrity, which is what it still is today in America. Mm -hmm. That's what 
our class system mm-hmm. is based on right now. But it's just as powerful, I think, and it's just as restrictive. Yeah, Carrie, for you, did you think about the similarities between the Gilded Age and today? Absolutely. It was shocking to read about some of the elaborate balls and parties that these families were putting on. And it was the beginning of the society pages of the newspaper and the paparazzi. What they were pulling off was so extravagant and so lavish and in some ways kind of disgusting (laughs) that everybody was really obsessed with it. Of course, you also have in this time when the rise of industry post-war, this time of incredible economic and manufacturing boom that's happening. And this extraordinary wealth really parallels what's going on today. I mean, the economic stratification we have in this country is unchanged or worse Mm -hmm. than it was then. I mean, you could say that back then it was worse because we had all these tenements. We had 14 million immigrants come in during the Gilded Age with no social welfare at all Mm -hmm. and no truancy and child labor laws. You could argue that things are better, but some of our social welfare systems have been gutted. You know, Mm -hmm. we're we're really not actually supporting Mm -hmm. these classes on the lower economic stratum right now. And I think, I just think that it's an interesting time for this show to come out because at the same time that we're aware that this stratification is deeply entrenched in our society and that these billionaires are just making more and more money and politicians are in bed with the industrialists just like they were when the government really supported the building of the railroads. Mm -hmm. And yet we're still enamored of celebrity and wealth and obsessed with it. I mean, look Mm -hmm. at the shows that people watch. Mm -hmm. Look at the Real Housewives and the Kardashians. And, you know, even though we know who's picking our pockets, we can't look away. (laughs) So it really hasn't changed. Yes, it's so true. I also think it's interesting, you know, you said nothing has changed. The funny thing is it had changed. We had the country had made real Mm -hmm. shift in its direction toward more equity, toward Mm -hmm. more equal distribution of wealth, toward unions, toward regulation. And it is just the cycle of greed comes back. And that's one of the main reasons I was really interested, because I think the thing about period, whenever you do any period, of course, it's always interesting to see the styles and the life and the money and the whatever. But any period, the only reason to do it is to say, what is it about that period that reflects and resonates today? And I think the reason to go back to the Gilded Age Mm -hmm. now at this moment is because we are in our society going back to a Gilded Age where we're saying, you know, stripping unions Mm -hmm. of their power and allowing the top 0.01% to pay the least amount of taxes. And, you know, that's how Mm -hmm. it all fell apart was that suddenly people were being taxed in a more equitable way and the super wealthy They couldn't afford to keep a staff of 50 people. So they had to develop these properties in different ways. They had to they had to share the wealth because that's how the system was being restructured. And the Gilded Age would be followed by the progressive era. You know, there is a pendulum, right, of progress. But of course, there had been reconstruction before the Gilded Age, which led to more equity, only to turn into something very different in the 1880s. You know, of course, we're seeing the parallel of that right now. We're mm-hmm. we're in sort of we're hoping that the pendulum is going to swing again toward a, another progressive era. Right. <laughs> and and we're seeing re- voting rights like very recently being exactly. increasingly mm-hmm. restricted. We live through this. Yes. Um, I did want to turn to one, you know, very notable scene, perhaps even the finale of this particular episode. It's Edison's display of electricity. Michael, in this scene, we see a huge crowd of extras. We see Carrie and others in carriages picnicking. We see a stage and a band and lighting effects and so much more going on. 
Can you take us into the scene? How, how did you put this together and how was it shot? Well, first of all, we began with a lot of research. We have an incredible research in history department uh, that works with us. And the amazing thing was the descriptions from people who were there, personal descriptions from journals, mm. from newspapers, everything, you know, famous people at the time who happened to be there was so extraordinary the way they described it as though they were at the Grand Canyon for the first time or the Aurora Borealis or something truly extraordinary and humbling and, you know, of a scale you couldn't imagine, genuinely moved by it, you mm -hmm. know? And so we did a lot of research about what it would have been and like literally just how much electricity there would be and how the voltage would be distributed and how you would it would be done in a series of circuits. You couldn't turn a whole building on at once at the time and things like that. So there were a lot of technical things and historical things that we looked at. But the most important thing for us always was to tell the story of every part of New York coming together for an event like this. Because there were so few of them in the Gilded Age, that the wealthy were there, that the Black community was there, that middle-class people and working-class people were there, and that they all had an investment in it, and that to each of them, it, the experience of it was equally moving and powerful and awe-inspiring. So then we looked at some things we could get from research and some things we just imagined. How would they structure a thing like that? How would they put it together? Who would sit where? What kind of parties would gather? And how would the elite isolate themselves from, from the others? And that if there was a Black contingent in the crowd, it would be pretty isolated. It would not that they wouldn't intersect or overlap in some ways, but it would be. It wouldn't be mixed the way it would be today. So there was all of that. And then we just sort of... <laughs> had to find a space where we could because we would really we knew we would never be able to actually find a building that would work like this that we could light up that we would have to create it as a visual effect so we needed to find a space and one of the many things that Troy New York offered us was this extraordinary monument square oh. it's called and it's that beautiful triangle with the big mm -hmm. monument in the middle and it's a world, it's a Civil War monument. So it's actually of the period and the buildings are correct around there. And that we knew we could, in this one area that was open, we could eventually create with the visual effects a building that was lighting up. But we would have the ability to put huge lighting structures in there that would create the effect on the crowd and on the buildings mm -hmm. that the building being lit up would eventually create on them, you know, where that building is, was an enormous lighting rig that had huge lights that would light up and kind of glow in different levels at different times. So we could kind of play it as though it was building and then later put the building in. But in the meantime, what the light effect did on the crowd and on all the buildings around it was what mm -hmm. creates the effect that it's actually mm -hmm. happening there. So um, that was pretty complicated to work out. And we had probably what we've estimated from putting it together is our crowd looks like about 3,000, but we had about 200 people to make it look like 3,000. <laughs> Carrie, for you, what were you reacting to? You were reacting to a big lighting grid? Yes, I was <laughs> reacting to a big lighting grid and to Nathan Lane's reactions beside me. <laughs> 
it, Michael's <laughs> right. It's it's hard to think of an equivalent today mm-hmm. to what how extraordinary that event would have been. And the descriptions that Michael gave us of how the crowd reacted and how individuals were feeling about what they were witnessing were really helpful because we can't we can't imagine something like that. Most of our innovations we have now that affect us collectively are not tangible. It's the internet, you know, it's a new mm-hmm. cell phone app. So I think the closest thing we have to that really was like the first moon launch or something. Yeah, we and I kids. was not alive for that, Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know, but that's what I'm saying. Like <laughs> right. a society, mm-hmm. like that fact of that, of people landing on the moon, you know, right. was probably that, like where all of society sat around in their living rooms, right. but still, and had the same collective experience. The reality is that I was eight months pregnant, crawling in and out of that carriage in my tennis shoes, and I wrapped at 5.30 in the morning, and it was my last night of shooting. (laughs) So I wrapped the whole series on that night. And I was, you know, um, not wearing a corset anymore, so probably more comfortable than most of the women that were there that night. But it was kind of a long shoot. Some of those effects or like action sequences and stories, people always think, oh, that must have been so much fun to shoot. (laughs) But really, they take hours and a lot of patience. But I was very grateful. Grateful to Michael and the design team, one for transforming Troy. They made these incredible storefronts and it really was, was transporting. It's much better than acting with a green screen, which I have done and requires a lot more imagination. Mm. And I much prefer to reserve my imagination for other things like remembering my lines. And so <laughs> that was extraordinary. And to actually have the lighting effect happening in front of us so that mm-hmm. we could react collectively. I mean, that's that sort of timing is actually really helpful and really tricky. If you don't have actually something to focus on, it's really hard to get a crowd mm-hmm. to do the do the same thing at the same time. Yeah. At the same time. We call it herding yeah. cats. You know, you just can't do it. The production design throughout the season has been an extraordinary gift to us because as actors, we've just, you know, we've been sort of suited up and plunked down into these worlds. And that's just, it's make-believe. It's the most, uh, you know, it's the most extraordinary gift. And we're talking about the lighting in that scene, but it's not the only lighting effect in this episode. I mean, it starts with a lighting effect, too, with the new (laughs) Union Station being all lit up. And then I was thinking, really, we're seeing different lighting inside the Van Ryn house and the Russell house, which is brilliantly lit. Did you have lighting experts helping out to get the right look of the right type of lighting that would have been used at the time? We we did, actually. And there was a whole sort of lots of studies we did and tests we did with actual gaslight, which unfortunately on film, gaslight is very green and it turns the actor's face is very green and we wanted to create the feeling of it rather than the look of it on film because when you're in it it actually is it's much warmer and kind of richer but we there's kind of hierarchies of light in the show and one of the things about the new money is you know light is expensive Mm -hmm. in any period light is expensive and so in the russell house the money goes toward high ceilings and enormous windows. So light pours in. And it because of the scale of it, you can have an enormous amount of gas fixtures everywhere and chandeliers. So, you, so at night, you are creating a huge amount of artificial light. And during the day, you're create, you've got natural, you know, abundant light pouring in. Whereas in the basement or in the old houses, they're smaller, they're coal fires from the earlier ones Mm -hmm. and they can't put as many gas fixtures around because it's first of all it's just dangerous in those small places and they just didn't have the capacity then when those were first built so 
you know, there's a lot more oil lamps and candles and things that kind of spotlight rather than light up a whole room. And we wanted to really emphasize the difference in those two, the way we showed those two parts of the world. Well, I was going to say, it reminds me of like Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick, and the way that he lit with candles and lights outside to evoke the natural lighting. It's beautiful. But I also would love to talk about the cast. We know that the cast is jam-packed with Tony Award winners, as Carrie, you mentioned. But Michael, I want to ask about one particular character that has truly stolen my heart and Tom's too, <laughs> Pumpkin. <laughs> Can you tell us about working with Pumpkin? I imagine he or she was, you know, a big diva. <laughs> wanted a trailer and had a lot of demands? Well, no, Pumpkin is a true professional in every way. Um, <laughs> I think when you have a dog in the house, you have to, in a show, you have to find moments where the dog would react. Like if there's somebody yelling outside, the dog barks. Mm -hmm. Or if somebody is sneaking through the house, the dog barks. And so I wanted to kind of not just have him be like a little visual every now and then, but to actually, there's a funny little undercurrent of life that happens when you have animals. And so it was, yeah, we wanted to bring that alive whenever we could. Well, Bertha actually finds an excuse earlier in the series to use pumpkin to her advantage. Yes, Bertha finds an excuse to use anything to her advantage, <laughs> even a living thing, most often living things, really. Yeah. Carrie, um, you worked with Pumpkin there. You spent a lot of time with the other Russells, played by Morgan Spector, Thaisa Farmiga, and Harry Richardson. In the case of Thaisa, you have a kind of difficult relationship with each other, as you've sort of insisted on keeping her out of society. How did you approach creating that chemistry? Well, Thaisa, I tease her all the time. I say, Thaisa Farmiga has made a lot of television and she thinks we should because it's true. She's actually probably worked more than me and she's probably her career will stretch longer than mine because she started so young and I came to it very late. So I defer to Thaisa on questions of production because she's much more experienced than I. Um, she's incredibly down to earth and she's clearly having a lot of fun stepping into this role, this sort of mousier mm -hmm. version, which Thaisa's not like that, of course. Um, she's a very uh, poised and funny young woman. And so I like to tease Thaisa in real life. I always talk about how dull Gladys is um, <laughs> to Thaisa just to get us all set up for scene work. But um, <laughs> but she's, she's just a lot of fun. She's tremendous. You know, of course, Harry is charming and easygoing and just fun to be around. And we really, that was one of the best parts about working on the show is that I was worried with all the COVID protocols, it was going to feel strange and alien and then it would be hard to build relationship. Mm -hmm. And yet when we take off our masks and we're rehearsing in the dining room, it just felt like it always does where actors are kind of, it's incumbent upon us to, to make that chemistry happen immediately because the, show, the cameras are rolling. You don't, have, you don't have four weeks of rehearsal to get that set up. And so I would say that we fell into that dynamic really easily and really quickly. And, and you know, as in Bertha's defense, again, she wants more for her daughter maybe than her daughter wants for herself. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's hard for Bertha to see the Gladys who's right in front of her as opposed to the Gladys that she hopes for in the world. And so, um, again, some blinders for Bertha. The world is set up to take care of her son. Her son is smart enough and attractive, mm. and he's going to be fine. The world's going to take care of him. But she knows the world is not set up to take care of her daughter. Mm -hmm. So whether you disagree yeah. with the way Bertha is treating her, that's one thing. But it really is ultimately about love because she knows, she knows what the world is like for women. And she knows what's coming to Gladys if she's not put in a good position. 
she sees her as an extension of herself, mm -hmm. uh, that Gladys's marriage ability and marriage success will be an extension, an expression of how well Bertha has done. And that was true for all of those families, you know? It's why, for instance, Agnes has on her hands a much more difficult marriage project, mm -hmm. you know, because she's got a willful person who has no money and whose father is a little shifty in his past, even though she comes from a good family in the right side of town. And that's the thing about the marriage market then is Gladys has a lot of money and family in that way. And so there would be a lot of guys who would be after her for that. But Bertha knows that she needs to hold out for something that's much more complex than that. And it, it, I think it's complicated also by the fact that by all accounts, George and Bertha have a very egalitarian marriage for the time they're living. Mm -hmm. It's a loving marriage. It's a sexual marriage. And of course, because there were so many marriages of convenience then, and so much of it was about preserving the status quo and, and making sure these old families' fortunes were propped up, it's very unusual. And unfortunately for Gladys, she may not get to also marry for love, which Bertha, because of her status at the time mm. she was married, was able to do. Her daughter's going to maybe have to make some compromises. And one person who tries to threaten the Bertha-George relationship is Turner, <laughs> Bertha's lady's maid. And in this episode, Marion has been dispatched by Agnes to ask Bertha to sack Turner, and Bertha agrees. So we have a clip where she is breaking the news to Turner. Take a listen. Turner, I've been thinking, and I wonder if it isn't time for us to take a rest from each other. What? We don't get on as we used to. Like all employers, you set the tone. See what I mean? Is this Mr. Russell's idea because... No, but he's asked me to give you a good reference, and despite some misgivings, I will. There's no need to imply your work's not excellent. Hey. What were you going to say? Nothing, madam. Nothing at all. Oof. Carrie, what do you think made Bertha act here? Agnes, George, she had just spotted Turner gossiping with Larry. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I do think, while the audience may perceive Turner as a threat to the marriage, I don't know that Bertha sees Turner as a threat to the marriage. I think she feels very secure in that part of her life, at least in this time of life. In 10 years, she might feel differently. No young hot maids around the house in 10 years. But for now, <laughs> I think she's feeling really comfortable in her marriage. So I do think that one of the things I appreciate about Bertha is that I think she does have a sense of fairness. I think she has her eye toward a kind of equality in the world that is a legitimate meritocracy where people who work hard can succeed like she has. Mm -hmm. So even though, I mean, that doesn't extend itself to everyone, that wouldn't be in keeping with the period, of course. I think ultimately, fundamentally, she does believe, you know, if Turner has done a good job and worked hard, she shouldn't fire her because of at someone else's behest. Mm -hmm. But if Turner presents a complication socially, if in fact she's seen out mm. cavorting inappropriately with a with a first family, she really does have to act because it's in her best interest to do so. But Kelly Curran is so beloved on our set, not because she's just a very um, smart, poised, interesting, uh, very fine actress. Some of the flourish, just the catty turn of a head from Kelly, I just think is a riot. I just love watching her work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Bertha and, and Turner share a kind of ambition. I think Bertha recognizes in Turner right? The potential mm -hmm. for, for uh, exactly. someone yeah. who's exactly. willing to do anything to get ahead. That's respect. 
it's funny. I think there's the moment, you know, when when um, Marion comes to her and says, oh, you know, she was seen touching a man's arm above her station, basically, yeah. of a different class. And uh, that that's enough for, for them to ask him. She says, well, I don't think that, you know, we'll see. But then shortly after that, Bertha sees her touching Larry's mm -hmm. arm. <laughs> right. And I think... I think she's just like, well, for whatever it's worth, let's just nip it in the bud. Yeah. At that point, she just sort of feels, I always felt like she's just not going to take any kind of risk with the family. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, the, there are so many great Bertha moments in the series. One that Tom and I particularly love happened in an earlier episode when she hears that her offer of the ballroom has not been accepted by the charity group organizing the bazaar. She throws <laughs> her breakfast tray across the room. I'm just wondering, Carrie, how much fun was a scene like that to film? Well, as an actress, as you well know, I think so often the parts we are offered don't allow for a lot of physical expression, you know, oftentimes supporting parts for women. It's like, oh, I'm just the supportive wife part. And we don't get to break things. And so it's always wonderful as an actress to be asked to express yourself fully that way. <laughs> I think being an actor is really healthy because we are invited, in fact, to be fully expressed. And see, these moments, I'm very smug about these moments because I was an athlete and I really pride myself on my physical expressions in shows because... My proudest moments, I would say, in my entire career are throwing a rock through a window in the leftovers six times in a row, just dead center and breaking it every time. And then this moment where I hit my mark with the tray the, on the first take right in front of the one camera. One take, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That was a one take shot. Only one. Wow. Just for fun, you didn't do it a so second time? Nope, we nailed it. We didn't. We watched it again to make sure. And we we're like, yeah, that was it. Why break more stuff and clean it so up? So the cameraman did not have to jump out of the way. The cameraman <laughs> just got to stay right there. Oliver didn't move an inch because it was perfectly placed. Very proud. Yeah, it's not a push. It's like a it's like a, a hurl. <laughs> yes. You even you toss. tweeted a gif of it. I saw. I did. <laughs> HBO made that. People, the internet was clamoring for a gif of Bertha throwing her tray, and luckily HBO foresaw that that was the case and had one all ready to go. Absolutely. <laughs> Michael, you know, we've talked here about Bertha, but we should bring in the idea of Mrs. Astor, who seems to be a driving force behind mm -hmm. Bertha's social motives here. We don't see Mrs. Astor in this episode, but we certainly feel her presence as Carrie Astor visits the Russell's ballroom. And we heard earlier from locations manager, Lori Pitkiss, that the ballroom scene here would have been shot at the Breakers in Newport. How was all of that? How was shooting at the Breakers in the Vanderbilt mansion? We knew at a certain point that we were going to use that as our ballroom. But since we weren't building, we weren't going to build a ballroom because we wouldn't use it enough to make sense, mm -hmm. to make it make sense. And so that design was very much tied to the design of our dining room set in the same house. So again, we would sort of have the pieces of the house feel like they connect to each other. But part of it was to have these two girls walk into this place and feel like they were in a kind of a magical ballroom, something that was larger than life and, and where really like a princess would have a ball, and uh, which was really what these things were designed to feel like. As you say, like, how was it to work there? First of all, the Preservation Society of Newport was incredibly generous with us and helpful in every possible way and proud, I mm -hmm. think, of the the heritage, the American history that they that they're caretakers for. And they do it with such pride, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they made it really easy so that we could recreate these 
these complex things earlier you know in the in the second episode the billiards room that's also in the breakers mm-hmm. and so to use these different pieces of it to sort of delineate the scale of each of our characters was really helpful i've already seen a lot of articles talking about how fabulous bertha's look was well i love what kasha our costume designer was up to because she very intentionally pushes Bertha a little bit outside of the period, which, you know, could be offensive to an historian, but I think it's important for a modern audience because we've seen a lot of these period pieces now. And in order to trigger this sense of who's ahead of the time, we have to do those little tricks, I think, to signal to the audience sort of where the characters fit in the social order and in the storytelling. Clothing, of course, was it was an enormous signifier of class and social status. And there's even um, tales of how women would take their dresses they bought in Paris and they would actually put them away for a year or two so as not to seem that they were seeking attention at the time. Bertha is not one to tuck her dresses away for a year, as you can (laughs) see. She's really, um, she's really going all out. And, you know, there would be debates among the costume designer, Kasha and her assistants, Patrick. There's a matter of like, for example, a woman could not go sleeveless. So for Bertha's dresses, it'd be a matter of like, well, can we get away with a wisp of a sleeve, with a cap sleeve, with a lace sleeve? Mm. And these were hotly debated issues between the design (laughs) team and Julian, which is fascinating Mm -hmm. um, to think about just the significance of those choices. So of course, it's fantastic. And Kasha was her creative powers are unleashed in every fitting. You go in and she gets inspired and she starts draping you in fabrics and she brings out all this trim and starts hanging it on you. And I have great pictures of all of our, you know, fittings, just like being wrapped in things and trying on the sort of forms of the hats and reshaping them on our heads. And I mean, it's it's absolutely transformative to put that on. I, the, the older I get, the more my process becomes outside in instead of inside out. I was always a really nerdy intellectual actor. And now... What it gives you, how, how a costume will remake your body, particularly with a corset and mm-hmm. handmade Italian leather boots and, um, you know, just all of the under things, the mm-hmm. bustles and the way you have to sit. I mean, I feel like three quarters of the work is done for you and it's just uh, on you to screw it up after that. And <laughs> when I came in pretty early in the production and said, guess what, I, I'm having a baby. Nobody batted an eye. They just got on board for the challenge of it. And costumes did an extraordinary job masking my pregnancy because there are scenes that were shot, for example... In episode 101 and 102, there are scenes we shot at the end of the season. So I start off not pregnant, Mm. and by the end, in the same costume, I'm eight months pregnant. Wow. And so they had to add drawstrings to the back of dresses or add elastic in places or just change the hems. And there were people in post-production working in other departments that didn't even know I was pregnant because costumes did such a great job masking it. One example I love to tell is in the the bizarre scene where I'm wearing that extraordinary peacock dress. Mm Well, there's a bit at the end of the episode yeah. in a carriage that we shot our last week of production. So that dress, which I wore our, basically our first week of shooting, mm-hmm. was not close to fitting. And because it's the kind of satin it is, you can't really alter it. So they put three big elastics across the back, slipped it over my head, and I'm sitting in that carriage, which is being rocked <laughs> by some men because we didn't have any horses. I'm pulling the bodice down with my hand so it's taut. And I'm trying not to move my head because my feathers are hitting the top of the carriage. And I'm trying to look relaxed, like I'm having a nice time and very proud of my husband. So some, there were some challenges that came up in that way where we had to rig some things rather quickly. But um, but by and large, I mean, the, the effort that was made to sort of mm-hmm. um, help me a well-timed horse or carriage. We always celebrated those moments. Yeah, <laughs> somebody passing at the moment, you might exactly. see her in profile. Yeah. Or and, and then there was some visual effects work done in a couple of places. And we tried to make it as organic as possible, you know, as we could. That's incredible. And you mentioned the hats, but you were also wearing a wig, right? 
Oh, sure. I have mousy gray hair. Yes, I was wearing a wig. Wow, <laughs> incredible. The women, the women are practically all wearing wigs all the time, mostly because otherwise they would spend an extra hour and a half, you know, in hair and makeup every day. And if they had to change their hairstyle during the day to shoot two different scenes, mm. we would never get it done. A big part of it is just the efficiency of it, aside from the look, even though very few people have the exact right hair to make the styles for the period. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, Carrie Coon and Michael Engler, thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having Likewise. us. Likewise. Thank you. Wow, Alicia, that was so great to get to talk to Carrie and Michael. And, you know, I, I still can't believe how they shot the show out of order and the, that the actresses and actors had to deal with the continuity and the different mm. sets, some things in Newport, some things in New York. And, and to top it off, Carrie was pregnant. It's incredible. I know that some scenes were shot when she was eight months pregnant and some <laughs> at the beginning of her pregnancy and you couldn't tell at all. I think they did a masterful job at hiding it. I also loved hearing Carrie Coon talk about how athletic she is and how she did our favourite scene with the breakfast tray in <laughs> one take. One Impressive. single <laughs> thrust of the tray. Amazing. So please join us again for another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast. Next week, we have more interviews with the cast and crew. And we'll be taking you for a trip to Newport, Rhode Island, as we talk about how and why owning a, quote, cottage in that <laughs> seaside city became a status symbol during the Gilded Age. So Alicia, don't forget to bring your four outfits a day, decent jewels and a full dance card. I'll try my best. But also don't forget to watch new episodes of The Gilded Age airing Mondays on HBO and HBO Max and then tune in to our next podcast. Bye, everyone. See you soon. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.